How's your week going? Well, Rowan, it's Monday. Oh my god. It's only Monday. It's only Monday, but honestly, my week is going a lot better because I get to talk to you. Thank Genuinely, you. I look forward to this. Even if I stress about getting my story ready in time. I've completely flipped my weeks in my head, so I consider Monday the last day of the week now. Ooh, smart. Well, I, I need to think of this as the end good thing. Yeah. And then Tuesday just starts the next round. That's smart. How's your week going? I quit this week. Being that this is the end of my week, even though it's Monday, <laughs> I quit after this. I'm I'm hanging up the towel. I'm other metaphors that are similar to towel hanging. And mm-hmm. I'm just going to curl up in bed after this with a big old cup of tea and a book. Oof. That sounds that's I mean, I'm going to do the exact same thing. You mean you don't have to quit to do that? Weirdly, Rowan, I've learned this new thing. Okay. Everyone hold on to your butts. I'm going to blow your minds. (laughs) (laughs) You can do hobbies and do things that are not inherently productive. And it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything bad. It doesn't mean anything good. And it doesn't say anything about who you are as a person. She's trying to speak to me. I know it. (laughs) I like your funny words, magic man. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> what is that from? It's from a cartoon show called Clone High, where uh, clones of famous people all throughout history are all in high school together. And so it's JFK is saying that one. That's funny. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a good show. You should check it out. It only had, I think, one or two seasons at the most before it got canceled. Truly, knowing you makes me a cooler person. I have better musical taste. I can reference fun cartoons. I definitely know how to use GIFs only because of you. (laughs) (laughs) I love this. This is the hype man energy that I I look forward to whenever we hang out. This is great. Well, everyone, that is Tracy Harrison. And the lovely voice you just heard was Rowan Hall. And this is Willing and Fable, the podcast that brings you original retellings and in-depth research on the history, mystery, and mythology that makes the world so fascinating. And if you'd like to support our podcast, you can do so in a few very easy ways. You can leave us a review, find us on Patreon, check out our merch on our Willing and Fable website, or you can just continue to listen. We are so happy to have you. No matter what you do, we appreciate having you. This week, we are looking to New Zealand for our stories. We have two Maori myths to share with you today. According to NewZealand.com, Maori culture is an integral part of life in New Zealand, influencing everything from cuisine to customs and language. Maori are the Tanagata Wanua, the indigenous people of New Zealand. They came here more than 1,000 years ago from their mythical Polynesian homeland, Hawaii. Today, one in seven New Zealanders identify as Maori. Their history, language, and traditions are central to New Zealand's identity, end quote. Continuing on, they say that in 1840, New Zealand's founding constitutional document, the Treaty of Waitangi, was signed by both Maori chiefs and representatives of the British crown. After the treaty was signed, the British population quickly grew larger than the Maori population. For more than a century after the signing of the treaty, Pākehā culture was dominant in New Zealand. Māori were expected to adapt to Pākehā culture. It wasn't until the 1980s that Māori culture started to undergo a renaissance. 
Since then, there has been a renewed focus on biculturalism, which is based on the partnership between the Maori and the Crown by the Treaty of Waitangi. Maori culture plays a role in everyday life in New Zealand. As an official language, it's common to hear te reo Maori spoken, and many official place names are Maori. You can easily learn the correct pronunciation of place names, plus some simple Maori words and phrases, such as kia ora and other greetings. Tikanga, or Maori customs, are also important in daily life. Manaaki Tanga is all about welcoming guests and providing great hospitality, something which all Kiwis pride themselves on. Kaitia Kitanga embodies the sense of respect and guardianship Maori feel toward the natural world. This philosophy is central to the love and care many New Zealanders have for the environment. We ask all New Zealanders to make the Tiaki promise, which captures the respect for our precious natural resources. End quote. <laughs> Obviously, we can't cover all or even a small fraction of the myths and legends that make up Maori culture, but even so, we wanted to share two stories that we were really excited about learning. We will do our very best with Teo Maori pronunciation, but as always, if you have any helpful tips to share, you can reach out to us on our website or through our Gmail at willingandfable.com. Today, I'm exploring the story of Tane, Fero, and the Baskets of Knowledge. Ooh, I'm so excited about this one. You picked this really early on when we knew we wanted to do these stories. I did pick this really early on, and it's because it feels particularly applicable right now where we are in mm -hmm. 2021. I, I won't give that away y just yet, but okay, that is why I called dibs, as it were, on this topic. <laughs> we don't really do that, but... uh. These two figures are two of the many, many children of Papa Tuanuku, the Earth Mother, and Rangnui, the Sky Father. Tane, the younger of the two brothers, sometimes wears various names to suit his roles. He separated the Earth and Sky. He is the god of light, the forests, the birds, and he is the creator of mankind. So already, I just want to point out, it's something we talked about, oh my god, way, way, way back in our Mother's Day episode from last year. <laughs> the idea that so many cultures have Earth Mother and Sky Father. I actually had to work very, very hard to confirm that. And I would not stake my life on it because there are very, very many websites that have it flipped. But Ooh. okay, while I was researching... The places that had it the way I said, Earth Mother, Sky Father, were all written by Maori people. And they had okay. Te Reo as one of the languages of the website. And I felt mm -hmm. like that was a pretty good, <laughs> a good way to know. Yeah. That said, there are a lot of different versions of this story. So... Details, even small ones, change from one source to the next. So I will yeah. let you guys know as we continue on the very, very specific sources that I chose. So if the, you want to read more about the myth as I am repeating it, you kind of know where to go. Yeah, I found in my research as well, there isn't really even one Maori culture. Absolutely It's a not. ton of different localized tribes, different cultures. You can have one story told many different ways. So... 
This is good for us to get out of the way now. If you've heard a version of one of the stories we're going to tell today, and it's different from what we tell, ours is not the definitive. There is no real definitive of any story, but... It's certainly not ours. <laughs> certainly not ours. We did our best to be as true as possible to the Maori telling of these myths. We didn't really take a ton of creative spins on them from our perspective because we both feel that these, and I can confirm based on how hard it was to research, yeah, these are not stories that are told as often as, let's say, a Greek myth. And so... Yeah, let's just say a Greek myth for no reason whatsoever. <laughs> So I think for me, it, it felt more important to tell you all this story as accurately as possible than it was to take a creative spin on something you might not have a ton of familiarity with in the first place. There is something very frustrating about researching for this podcast, and it is that Tracy and I are both very aware of and talk about the fact that when we cover episodes that are specifically stories from people of color, we always know that the episode is going to be shorter mm -hmm. because it is going to be that much harder for us to find a breadth of information that is trustworthy and firsthand. And I, in researching this particular story, I stumbled across one of the most racist sources I have ever encountered mm. disguised as educational text. Oh my god. I so I was lucky. I found very I found very reliable sources because I used a lot of New Zealand Geographic, New Zealand Encyclopedia. I'm really curious what you found. So I won't say the website because I don't want anyone driving no. up their SEO on Google. <laughs> mm -mm. But it was an online educational publication that may or may not have been linked to a university. <sighs> That was framing Maori myths as a, um, I should say, describing them so that the people who were reading would know where they could liken it to Christian culture and then <laughs> use that similarity to convert people. Oh, my God. And if you are researching a culture with the sole goal of converting someone, there is absolutely no way that you are going to come close to honoring the authenticity of the original tale. No, absolutely not. I was so mad. I think I, I spent like an hour reading through that source. That is infuriating. That's really infuriating. Yeah. So that said, there are a lot of really great websites. On the other hand, making it easy to learn about mm -hmm. Maori customs and language. This was one of the first stories that I found a website that is specifically dedicated to someone saying the name of gods for you. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And we have all the links to all of that in the show's description as well as on our website if you ever get curious and want to check it out. So thank you for indulging my tangent. Yeah. Please continue your story about Firo. Okay, so we have Tane on the one side. He's associated with life. And then we have Pharaoh, who is the elder of the two brothers. And he is the god, quote, associated with all things negative and bad, disease, evil, and darkness. He's most popular for being the father of insects, bats, and some species of birds. Or you may have seen him before as the embodiment of scabs, disease, and sickness. I'm really excited about the quote that I just used. So before I dive into my story, I just want to quickly shout out 
one of the sources that was particularly helpful this week. It's the website and podcast of a woman named Hana Tapiata. I first found her website, and then I started listening to her podcast, The Foca Popa Effect. Uh, she does something so... Can you spell that out if someone wants to go look up that podcast? Yeah, it's W-H-A-K-A-P-A-P-A. She does something really kind on her blog posts where she translates the Maori words as they are in context within the writing. And then sometimes she goes really into pronunciation details on her podcast. And that made learning through her work particularly comprehensive. You can find her in all places on the internet as Hana Tapiata, H-A-N-A-T-A-P-I-A-T-A. As we said above, there are numerous versions of today's stories uh, with changes from smaller to larger. So the one that I am telling is influenced by the teachings of Temotoro Hana and Nepia Pohuhu, as well as the Ferewanaga of Hokiaga and the National School of Ancient Maori Weaponry as presented by KIWA Digital, which you can find on YouTube. All right, let's get into it. I'm excited. One day, Io Matuakore, the supreme god, summoned his two heavenly guardians to Tikitikiorangi, the uppermost of the twelve heavens. The massive serpentine creatures, Rehua and Ruotau, were sent down to earth to figure out which of Ranginui and Papa Tuanyuku's sons could ascend to the uppermost heaven to receive three sacred baskets and two sacred stones. These baskets held vital knowledge for mankind. Tekete Aranui, which held all the knowledge that was essential for mankind's survival. Tekete Tuauri, which held ritual knowledge, memory, and prayer, and Tekete Tuatea, in which there was the malevolent knowledge of the black arts. There were also two stones of godlike power that bore names of their very own, Hukatai and Rehutai. Rehua and Ruotau went down to earth tasked with this choice. From above, they trained their glaring eyes on the brothers and their serpentine forms writhed in the sky. Ruotau asked, By what path will you journey to reach the uppermost heaven? The brothers gave their answers. Pharaoh confidently suggested the edge of heavens as his most assured route. But Rehua and Ruotau explained to foolish Pharaoh that by going that way, the strong wind would overwhelm him. Perhaps he would fall from that very great height. Going to the next group of brothers, Rahua asked again, By what path will you journey to reach the uppermost heaven to retrieve the baskets of knowledge and the stones of godlike power? Some brothers suggested the way of heaven's staircase. Others suggested the way of the long Aka'aka vine. But none of the answers were correct until Tane, the youngest of the brothers, spoke. In a calm and confident voice, he said to the coiling serpents, I will take heaven's staircase, but then I shall catch the ascending clouds and they will shepherd me up to Tikitikiorangi. The guardians were impressed by the young brother and immediately carried him away to a spring to anoint himself for his journey. In the ritual waters, he thought only of the great task for which he was chosen— 
For his entire journey to the entrance of uppermost heaven, he thought only of what he must do to reach his goal. But while Tane prepared in earnest, his elder brother Pharaoh became increasingly jealous. How could he allow his younger brother to achieve what was rightfully his? Pharaoh set off immediately to take his route to the uppermost heaven, proving once and for all that he, as Tane's older brother, knew what was best. As he began climbing the edge of heavens, he was already far ahead of his younger brother, who chose to wait at the base of the mountain for the violent winds to calm. Tane was not alone in his journey. Tupai, as well as the god of weather, wind, and storms, Tafiri Mate both endeavored to help Tane reach the goal for which he was tasked. All powerful Io required it, and they could help. Neither man sought glory, only to aid the chosen brother on his quest. As Pharaoh climbed the mountainside all alone, the southerly tempest came along to carry the team of three up to the tenth heaven. In the tenth heaven, Tane again immersed himself in cleansing water before he could continue higher still. He could not eat or drink a single mouthful until he completed his sacred task. Even so, Tane took his time, not knowing that his jealous brother sought a competition for the prize that would benefit mankind. He thought only of his goal, his gratefulness for his companions, and his hope for success. All the while, Pharaoh, having gone ahead without cleansing himself, waited at the entrance of Tiki Tiki Orangi. But now he had allies of his own. His Tetini Opoto, a swarm of pests, blinked bright, hungry eyes in the darkness. The bloodsuckers and predators, mosquitoes, spiders, insects, bats, owls, even some birds, all prepared to keep Tane from the baskets of knowledge and the stones of godlike power. But when Tane appeared and Pharaoh sent his beast to attack, Tafiri Mate used his power to send a great wind to protect his brothers. The flying creatures could not break through the gales, no matter how much Pharaoh pushed them on. In fact, Tafiri Mate fought with such vigor for his brother that the pests were blown far away to the nether regions of the high heavens. Tane and Tupai pressed forward while their brother fought, and soon they arrived at the uppermost heaven. Io greeted them with bright light, and the guardians which embodied all the beauty of the male and female forms appeared by his side. They made sure Tane was again purified before he was finally presented with the fruits of his arduous journey, the three baskets of knowledge and the two stones of power. As they began their descent, Tane cheered and laughed with joy. He felt a warm pride in their accomplishment and the good it could do the earth. But as they descended between the 11th and 10th levels of the heavens, they were again vulnerable to Pharaoh's pests. This time, the serpent guardian Rehua became frustrated for Tane and his small team. The guardian growled with anger at the god Pharaoh who believed he deserved what he did not earn. Rehua joined with Tafiri Mate, and their combined powers destroyed the blood-sucking beasts in a wild flurry of winds and snow. 
The wild wind drove many of the bugs, birds, and beasts to their death, but some were blown down to earth. Many even say Pharaoh made sure his allies fell down to the earth below. If he could not have the baskets to help mankind, he endeavored to torment them with his throng. But among his dark army was the beautiful butterfly. The winged insect of color was somehow a part of Pharaoh's creation. Perhaps this sweet creature who feeds on sweetness was a symbol that there is always good among the bad and light within the darkness. Tane and his loyal team descended to earth with clouds shining brightly and trumpets blasting. Everyone gathered around to welcome the gifts of the baskets of knowledge and the stones of godlike power, and mankind emerged into this world of enlightenment and understanding. Pharaoh, disgraced as he was, was sent to live in Raurohanga, the underworld. From here, Pharaoh vowed to enact his revenge on Tane and his descendants forevermore. His dark energies, disease, and fear would plague mankind. But thanks to Tane, there would always be the tools to combat it. I would argue, based on personal preference, that bats should be included with butterflies as being lovely things to come out of Firo's creation. I was thinking about the whole time, the little sky puppies. <laughs> I love bats so much. They're very good. You should protect them and... They are wonderful. I would choose a bat over a butterfly any day. Mostly because butterflies freak me out. If it is a blood-sucking bat, the only problem with them is that uh, livestock are particularly vulnerable to them. Mm -hmm. So I love them, but if I were a farmer with livestock, I might love them if they were further away from me. (laughs) True, 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 true. (laughs) Butterfly is the worst you're going to get as a a little flap on the cheek, I guess. Again, bad for you, but not if you're a farmer. This is totally a personal preference thing. It is all me. I was in a butterfly house at a natural history museum, and I had to run out. I couldn't do it. It just freaked me out too much. And I didn't expect it. I went in so excited and then (laughs) had to run out the other end. Uh, No, thank you. There are not a lot of versions of the story that go more into detail on the pests front than I did, but I will say that I played it down specifically for you. Thank you. I care about (laughs) you. Also, you get the idea. There were bugs and then there weren't bugs. That's how the mission went. There were bugs and then there weren't bugs and then he gave them to us, which is truly the cruelest gift he could deliver. (laughs) So on the pests front... Again, pest is a word that I use very, very loosely in this case. Mm -hmm. Reading the Journal of Polynesian Society, I learned that it can be an evil omen to encounter a lizard while out on a walk. Quote, It is the emissary of Pharaoh and the harbinger of death. This applies specially to the green lizard called Moko Kakariki. The Moko Kakariki was one of the party of night-moving creatures sent by Pharaoh to attack Tane. So I love a lizard, but, you know. Maybe not that one. Right, not that singular lizard. (laughs) (laughs) Screw that lizard in particular. (laughs) The reason that I chose this story was actually a lot of the writing that I found surrounding it. So 
I found numerous sources, including the blog that I mentioned at the top, that talk about the way that Firo affects people's daily lives by manifesting or causing laziness, lack of motivation, not caring for oneself, etc. And just as he brings disease to people and pollution to the earth, he might similarly sicken our will or our thoughts. I think that's such a cool way to think about mental illness as combined with physical illness. That is very much worked into all the modern tellings that I found about this story. And I think that it is particularly helpful in this case because throughout the stories about these gods, Firo is defeated by Tane and his brothers and allies. So writer Te Mirirangi suggests ways to honor those gods and maintain motivation. Uh, He says, get some sun, eat fish, sing or hum or chant, engage your brain in strategy by learning new skill or playing Sudoku, and of course, exercising. Because those are things that connect you both with your physical self, but with the world around you and the Mm -hmm. people that care about you. Hana Tapiata points out that Firo should have understood that another person's success does not and should not deter one from their own journey. She teaches this as a lesson that we all must learn as his presence in our lives and the world. And as I learned about this story, it just felt more and more applicable to life in quarantine. (laughs) Yes, I was going to point that out. Because to me, it reminds me of, you know, the battling your internal demons that we hear a lot about as an American euphemism for it. And I just found so many mentions of Firo and the lesson being reach out, you know, connect with the people who care about you. One specifically said, get some vitamin D. (laughs) Just very (laughs) practical applications that connect to something that allows deeper feelings to have a a lineage. And I really liked that. It is so much more helpful than the idea of, well, just fight your inner demons. Just push away those bad things. It's here connect it, 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 it's a more positive outlook it's about connecting and reaching out for help and about that being good as opposed to we've just so romanticized the idea of being haunted or broken and while that's all fun and good in your dark-haired YA protagonist it's not good in people you know and it gets very frustrating very quickly Right. And it's it's just not a happy way to live. Full stop. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you don't have to live that way. <laughs> and and that said, in all of the reading, there was no judgment. Mm-hmm. When people gave great advice and talked about these myths and how they're applicable, there was no, you shouldn't be succumbing to this negative Mm -hmm. figure in our mythology, which I think gets attached to a lot of different pantheons. Like, it's your fault you've fallen into the trap of Satan is a great example. Satan is completely guilt-based. 
And a lot of Christianity is about guilt and absolution. This does not seem that way. It just seems about working to be better and to try to find the better within and outside yourself. So do you want a science fact? You know, I always want a science fact. (laughs) On Thursday, April 11th, 2019, Jessica Tyson reported for the Teo Maori News, quote, Yesterday, Event Horizon Telescope researchers unveiled the first direct visual evidence of the supermassive black hole located more than 50 million light years away from Earth. The image is the result of work carried out over a 10-year period and shows a black hole which is 3 million times the size of Earth and 500 million trillion kilometers away. Now, Tracy, I know you knew about that black hole, so just buckle up for one second. Because the cool part about this article Mm -hmm. is that she went on to quote Dr. Rangi Matamoa, a Maori astronomer and professor at the University of Waikato. He said that the black hole is similar to the origins of the god Firo. Quote, he lives in a place called Taife Tuki, which is a cave which is deep and dark, and it's from that point where Firo often attacks us and tries to make the world remain in perpetual darkness. So from a Maori perspective, I think maybe that's Taife Tuki. Maybe that's a place of darkness and destruction and is the origins of Tekore. According to Maori Marsden, a Tai Tokerao elder and Anglican minister, Tekore is the realm between non-being and being. That is the realm of potential being. I thought you'd really like that interpretation. Yes, it's so cool. I love when people take science and use it to reaffirm their faith in something. To see what's going on in the natural world and believe that it proves these bigger-than-life thoughts. And the idea of this a black hole being a place between being and non-being is scientifically accurate in a lot of ways. Oh, they love that. Thank you for giving me that gift. That article is very, very cool because it isn't science is right and your religion is wrong and it's not religion exists and science can't. It's both of these things in harmony, creating a human way of existing and understanding the world. And it made me very excited because anytime that science allows mythology to be more present and makes the story even richer... Mm-hmm. the more that we all get to feel like main characters in a very exciting world. Yes. <laughs> I love this. That was such a perfect way to end that story about an evil person doing terrible things. But he lost. <laughs> he lost. We got bugs and bats. We got a black hole. So in the end, I think we won. I'll go with that. What's your story, Trace? All right. Today, I'm going to share with you all the tale of the guardian spirit known as Tanifa. Tanifa is less a singular creature and more of a type of guardian spirit, especially of the waters. Many Tanifa are thought to have guarded specific tribal groups as they made their way over to New Zealand from Hawaii. Thought to have originally guarded a particular ancestral canoe, 
once the Maori arrived on the land, the Tanifa took on a protective role over the descendants they had originally accompanied. An article on Medium.com describes Tanifa thusly. Each tribe was associated with one Tanifa, mythical creatures that can be at the same time evil beings or guardians. Some live in caves, others in rivers and lakes and others in the sea, and they have supernatural powers. They can cause earthquakes and tidal waves, although if they are respected and revered, they help their people. To calm a Tanifa, the Maori must offer gifts. For example, the first fruits of the harvest or a green branch accompanied by a spell. End quote. I love when learning about mythology and story shows us how people are much more closely linked than they are different. Which is not to say that any one culture isn't unique, but getting mm-hmm. to see the way that human beings cling to certain ideas and find passion around these beings, like, this is a guardian, and yet you're still offering things to it in the same way that, you know, we love the brownies and the domovoy. You're offering things to them, and they're they're a much smaller scale. And getting to point to those tiny, tiny little details all the way around the world, it makes me giggle. Oh, it is 100%. It is why we started this podcast. We would just geek out together over these kinds of things. And it's <laughs> this podcast has opened so many more doors than I ever thought in terms of researching things I didn't even know existed. The more that we search, the more we realize we don't know. Very much so. (laughs) (laughs) This podcast is a black hole. It is the liminal space between knowing and not knowing. (laughs) (laughs) I want that embroidered on a pillow on my couch in my living room. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, what were you saying? All right. Sometimes Tanifar are described as supernatural creatures similar to serpents or dragons. They are said to hide in oceans, rivers, lakes, or caves. Sometimes they're said to eat people and kidnap women, though other times they are just depicted as protectors and would be offered gifts, and people would say a karakia, or a prayer. According to the Encyclopedia of New Zealand, quote, some were like giant lizards, sometimes with wings. Others were reptile-like sea creatures. Or they took the shape of sharks or whales, or even logs of wood in the river. Some could change their shape, mm-hmm. end quote. Mhm. They could be they could be anything. I'll talk about it later, but there was a construction project that wanted to go on and people said, "Our Tanifa is a log in this river. You can't build through it." Oh wow. Did they did they win? Uh in one case, yes. In another, no. Oh. Yeah, but there is one case where they did not do construction because people said, "Our Tanifa is in the way of that and you cannot move through that sacred land. What I love is that although these creatures are described as supernatural, they were seen by the Maori as part of the natural environment as well. Tanifa can either be male or female. They hid in lairs known as rua tanifa, which could be deep pools, caves, or dangerous waterways, but they were areas that people avoided. In fact, in 2002, the Nagati Naho people in Waikato, 
opposed a plan for a highway, like I said. They said it would destroy the lair of their tanifa, Karutahi. As a result, the highway was built in a different area. Small win? Yeah, definitely a small win. And so much similarity to dragons, which of course my brain is going to because I know more about dragons around the world and I've never heard of these guardians before. Mm-hmm. But it is it is interesting to me that human beings have this unending link with rather large lizards. Yes, and these are these are wa- I mean they're they're very similar to water dragons. They are slithery, cr- magical, supernatural creatures of the ocean. They are what the Tanifa in my story were. Uh, that's what they look like, although mm-hmm. slightly different and to my understanding have a different role, but the appearance is very similar to the guardians that Eo sent down to the brothers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It does sound really similar. So, Rome, would you like to hear about a few different famous Tanifa? Yes. All right. So there's a few stories of famous Tanifa, such as the Tanifa of Kaipara. This Tanifa chased down a group of sisters picking berries one day. He stole away the most beautiful of the three sisters and took her as his bride. She was taken away to his cave and became his wife. She bore him six children— Three were Tanifa, and three were human. As they grew, she secretly taught the human children the way of the Maori and how to use weapons. Eventually, they rose against their brothers and killed them, as well as their father. They freed their mother, and the four returned home to their village and their long-awaiting family. Dragons steal pretty women. That's Those are the rules. <laughs> those are the rules. <laughs> it, I mean, you do see the similarities of this serpent creature stealing a beautiful woman you you see it all the time with dragon stories if you remember back to our whiskey and fable episodes tim told a similar story oh absolutely about a creature stealing a beautiful woman and here you have a tanifa stealing the most beautiful of three sisters even cracks dragon which we told very recently constantly stealing beautiful women Mm-hmm. dragons love shiny things and beautiful women and you know crack likes getting texts another story tells of a famous explorer named kupe and his guardian tuirangi tuirangi eventually took the form of a friendly dolphin who would swim with ships in the area i just thought that was a nice one anytime people are bonding with animal figures that we can very easily anthropomorphize seals Mm -hmm. dolphins Mm. Of course, it pulls on your heartstrings right away. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I I had to include that one because I just thought that was so sweet. A little (laughs) dolphin friend. (laughs) (laughs) However, while many Tanifa were helpful guardians, some were fearsome monsters, and through them grew the need for Tanifa slayers. These brave warriors often felled these monsters through clever and ingenious ways. Here is a translation of a Karakia prayer to slay a Tanifa. The monster there, vast as rock he lies, how angrily his eyeballs glare, how flash his fiery eyes. Come sleep, come sleep, let the slumberous spells be laid, in the depths below, in the depths below. Let sleep be as of night, like the great night, the long night, 
the sleep-bringing night. Sleep on, sleep on. According to Teara, a website dedicated to the people, environment, history, culture, and society of New Zealand. One of the websites we used the most for this episode. (laughs) It is amazing. It was so helpful, so well organized. Yes. Had amazing articles and first-person accounts and theories and thoughts and articles and scientific research. Go check out this website. Because they had such a wide variety of people contributing to the website, I think that I, at least for my story, I got kind of multiple snapshots of what the tale could look like, and that was really helpful. I found a really amazing article on their website that had the original story told in the original language and then a translation to English on another page, and that was the main source that I used for my story today. Because it was the one I trusted the most. So, according to their website, while debate continues, Tanifa continued to play an important role in the culture identity of many tribal groups. End quote. So today, Rowan, the Tanifa story I'm bringing to you is the story of Hine Korako. According to legend, the first six generations of the Te Reinga, starting with Ifara, and ending with Hine Karako, were not humans as we know humans to be today. Instead, they were a race of water spirits with some of the human spirit we know inside of them. But all of that changed with Hine Karako and a love which would change the entire world. It was the day she met Tane Kino that her world, and thus ours as well, would be forever shifted. You see, Hine Karako fell in love with Tane Kino. He was everything she could ever want in a partner. She knew immediately that she wanted to spend the rest of her life by his side. And to her great and immeasurable pleasure, he felt the same way. So they agreed to marry and spend the rest of their lives together in bliss. But Hine Karako knew that in order to do this, she would need to sever herself from her Tanifa ancestry. As with all great stories, this would mean a test. However, this wasn't just a test for her, but for her beloved as well. She told him before they married that when they bore children, he would need to care for the child. He would need to wash, feed, nurse, love, and raise this child on his own until the child could do so for itself. She could not assist him in this as it would mean she could no longer stay with him and their child. Tane Kino promised that he would do this for his beloved wife and any children they might share. But a promise is easy when it's in the abstract. It's much harder to keep once it's real. Soon enough, Hine Karako bore a son whom they named Taurenga, and true to his word, Tane Kino raised the child himself. When the child cried, Tane Kino soothed him. When he was hungry, Tane Kino fed him. When he was dirty, Tane Kino bathed him, and for a time all was well with the small family. However, when Taurenga was old enough to crawl, the couple following the custom of the Maori people brought their child to a meeting of the tribe. It was immediately apparent to all when they arrived that Tane Kino was the one caring for the child. 
they found this extremely unusual, and the quietest of the group merely stared, while the more vocal actively voiced their displeasure at the pair. They questioned the two and asked why Hine Karako was so unwilling to raise the child herself, but she did not reply. Tanakino went and sat down with Taurenga beside him, while Hine Karako stood nearby and endured endless questions and insults. She could take this. It was only words, and they would not hurt her if she did not let them. Suddenly, Taurenga let out a loud cry, and based on smell alone, it was clear to anyone nearby what caused him discomfort. Flustered and frustrated, Tanikino snapped at his wife to come help him clean up the child. Hine Karako hesitated, but her husband snapped again, louder this time, and insisted on her help. She did as she was told. She walked over to her husband and child and scooped the baby boy up in her arms. She took the child to a nearby stream and gently washed the boy off, cleaning him as tenderly as only a mother can. She dried him with her clothes and held him close to her chest. She then fed him food until he was happy and satiated. He laughed in her arms until tears flowed down her cheeks. Her husband appeared behind her then. He was horrified with what he'd just done. He begged her to forgive his broken promise. He pleaded that she excuse his momentary lack of judgment and his thoughtless action. But there was no forgiveness to be given, no remedy to be had. Hine Karako continued to weep with her son gently nestled in her arms until finally she stood. She handed the child back to Tani Hino and told him that since he had been faithless to his promise... She had no choice but to return to her watery home under the Teringa Falls. And thus, to this day, Hine Karako still remains as a Tanifa underneath the waterfalls, watching over her descendants and lending a motherly hand whenever she is called upon. That story was nothing like I expected it to be. Really? I'm curious what you were expecting. Well, I knew the topic that you were covering, and that was it. Mm -hmm. And because in my head I had likened them very much to dragons, I expected kind of more of a, that tale. And mm -hmm. instead it's reminding me of Izinami and Izinagi and yeah. any trial in which someone has to rescue someone from a version of hell or the underworld. <laughs> yeah. It kind of reminded me of Sedna a little bit, I think in that sense of being forced into something you were so certain you didn't want. I don't know. There was just something about her energy and the sadness that mm. reminded me of Sedna. I think it was the sadness part. There's also a lot of persistence in both of those stories. There's that fighting for the life you want. Mm-hmm. I would say that Hine Karako, though, was a uh, more virtuous woman. In most of the tellings, Sedna was not thinking about anyone other than herself. Yeah, I mean, there is a fundamental difference in the stories. And there's another version of this story that has Hine Karako leaving her husband and child simply because she was insulted repeatedly by his family, especially after the birth of her son. Hmm. In this version, she abandons them out of frustration and anger and chooses to go live alone under the Teirenga waterfall, where she remains to this day. I found it a more compelling story, and I saw it more often, that she kind of was forced by a broken promise. 
to go live alone. Definitely gives you a picture of two very different Tanifa with two very mm-hmm. different personalities and motivations. I, I, I mean, I'm gonna, I like the one that you chose as well in terms of the type of story that compels me. Mm-hmm. I love a sworn oath that gets broken. There's just something so tragic, especially when it's, you know, you think of um, Orpheus and Eurydice, just that one single momentary lapse of judgment destroys any chance of happiness. It's not a promise that you're intending to break. You're not sitting there thinking, I'm done with this. You just have a very human moment. Yes, and that human moment is all it takes to to lose everything. Yeah. (laughs) So according to uh, a version of this story that's told by the Teiranga Maori School that expands further on what happens to Hine Karako, quote, on one occasion, during a heavy flood in the Hangaroa River, Nagati Hinehika were flooded out in the middle of the night. Down swept the canoes to the dreadful falls, now a raging cascade. Just at the right time, one old Tohunga, who had maintained his presence of mind, called aloud on Hinekarako for help, and immediately the rush of the canoes towards the falls was stopped, and all the occupants were saved. And that was a story I saw a few times, the idea that Hine Karako is still living in those falls and anyone who remembers to call out to her is helped by her presence. I like that. And that goes along with the version of the story that you told where she does have a very strong maternal energy, the mm-hmm. desire to help and care for those around her. Especially because in the story you told, she is harmed by the people around them passing judgment on her the idea that someone acknowledging her and caring for her the way that she is would be paid off again it reminded me of sedna where the more they prayed to sedna and asked for her her mercy the more she would give back to them Mm, i see i see that's that makes sense to me i i like that connection i think that element of the story solidifies that for me. For anyone interested in hearing the story of Sedna, she is the Inuit goddess of the sea that Rowan covered in our Stories from the Sea Part 1 episode, which you can find, as always, wherever you listen to podcasts. Probably wherever you're listening to this right now. (laughs) So, Rowan, I too have a science fact. Would you like to hear it? Really? We both did that. Okay, yeah. We did. It. <laughs> I think it makes sense because the the Maori culture is so tied to the environment. You see a lot of science get tied into the beliefs. Mm, I love that. Anguilla Diefenbaki, or the New Zealand longfin eel, is perhaps the largest eel in the world. And a likely inspiration for the Tanifa. How large? Rowan, describe the face you're making right now, please. (laughs) I just stuck my tongue all the way out of my mouth and made a squidgy face because eels are squidgy. Sorry. (laughs) How big is this this big, bad, slimy boy? 
female longfin eels are larger and longer lived than males. Males average 66 centimeters, but reach up to 73 centimeters in length, with an average of 23 to 35 years. Females are considerably larger, ranging from 73 to 156 centimeters, with an average length of 115 centimeters. They typically live 20 to 60 years. No. No, that is mm-hmm. too long. Mm-hmm. Too long lived and too long an eel. Do you want to look up a picture of this eel? Yeah, I do. Okay, I will describe it. Please do. Oh, God. Okay. Oh, no. Okay. Whew. Okay, so I found a picture of a gentleman holding a long fin eel that is alive and is lashing out towards the camera. Okay. I'll make sure it gets put on the Instagram, but he has the whole thing kind of tossed over his shoulder, and it's gray and slimy looking and thick with kind of mottled black spots and a black top. Yep. Point is that it's too big. It's too big. It's <laughs> it's huge. It is huge, and it's got this squished, gross little fish face. They are very solitary creatures, and they literally just live alone in the bottom of rivers and under rocks and come out at night to hunt or hunt on their own. So you can see where the inspiration for the Tanifa being these. Why are there so many pictures of older white men smiling while they hold these things up dead? It's because there are many men out there whose only personality trait is to hold a fish. That's <laughs> you just, just described a thing. all of Tinder. Yes. <laughs> okay, so I can see why that would be potentially the inspiration behind mm-hmm. these stories because that thing definitely has a personality. Mm-hmm. That eel knows who it's voting for. That eel remembers grudges from when it was a baby. Oh, yeah. That eel looked at you, found you lacking, and it's just going to quietly judge you from a distance. It's not It's not impressed, you know? 60 years? Mm-hmm. And they breed pretty late in life, if I remember correctly. Same. <laughs> <laughs> All right. An article by Claudia Babarat for New Zealand Geographic states that Although eels were an important food source that allowed Maori to settle further inland, the country's first occupants revered as well as feared the large longfins. Some rivers, lakes, and caves were declared tapu, believed to be the home of water-dwelling monsters or tanifa. Even now, access to certain areas is restricted or forbidden because a tanifa is said to inhabit the water. The author continues to write, We have a lake near here where we don't go said Pataka Moore, a lecturer in environmental sciences at the University of Otaki. Te Wananga o Raukawa told me, quote, Every hill and tree and stone has a story in our region, but there are no stories at all associated with that lake. Moore recounts stories of drownings and accidents. The most recent incident involved a man who badly injured his arm while swimming in the lake. Some people might argue that he got tangled in branches, Moore said. But there are those of us who know it was a tanifa in the form of an eel. End quote. 
That's more than a little terrifying. Yeah, I read another article about a couple rowing out on a lake and the husband was doing some scuba diving, snorkeling. I think it was, scu- no, it was scuba diving. He was doing some scuba diving and he went down and came face to face with one of these eels and swam back up so quickly and with so much fear that he had to go to the hospital because he, he gave himself the bends. Right. He went up too quickly. Mm-hmm. And uh, like never wanted to go back in the water ever again. It was insane. And it was he ran into one of these long fin eels and, and they if I came face to face with one, you better believe I'd believe it was a tiny fa. The water is scary. We said it we've said it since the beginning of the podcast. The water is scary. I don't trust anything in the water, especially the deeper down you go. I was watching Planet Earth on Netflix the other day because I was sad and there's nothing like a documentary about animals to make you feel better. But then they were showing stoneflies, those River bugs. Ooh, and I had to check no, out you. because underwater and bad. <laughs> Before we wrap up our stories today, Tracy, I wanted to tell you about something, but I actually wanted to tell all of our listeners about a show that I stumbled across while I was researching. Ooh. And it's a show called The Deadlands. It was created from a 2014 New Zealand action film, also called The Deadlands, by Toa Fraser and Glenn Standring. Standring describes the inspiration for the story, quote, In modern culture, Maori believed the spirit would leave the earth and go to the afterlife and live a whole other life where they would be with their ancestors. So there was this notion of a dishonored Maori warrior going to the afterlife expecting to be let in and being told, no, you haven't earned the right to be here. You need to go back to the world and earn the right to die. Really. And that notion of the bad man trying to be good is always a great thing to play with. The series is rooted in action and horror, and Standring says, quote, By leaning into the supernatural, it meant in the writing and the production that we naturally lent into Maoriness, culture, mythology, the supernatural, and spiritual beliefs. Ooh, that sounds so good. I watched the trailer, and I watched part of an episode. It is available on the AMC Network streaming service called Shudder. And I am... I do not have a Shutter subscription, and I am going to get one just to watch this show. Tim, I think Tim does have a Shutter subscription because he's seen every horror movie known to man. I think I'm going to usurp his subscription and watch this. It, it, it looks just visually so gorgeous. Uh, there is a badass female lead. There's a complicated mm-hmm. male lead who, you love to from see what it. I've seen so far, is actually allowed to have feelings. Um, Bless. <laughs> so even just from a basic show creation standpoint, it's very exciting. But producer Tanui Stevens was originally hesitant to adapt the film into a show shot in English. Because the movie was originally shot in Te Reo Maori. He said, quote... The film put the Maori language out there to the world. And that was one of the attractive things to me, because as people, we've been undergoing acts of language revitalization for the last few decades. We've been having all sorts of successes there, but of course, it's a hard thing to do. He continued on to say, quote, The sort of story that The Deadlands is, and the kind of time The Deadlands is set in, is really important. 
It reaches out to those who do not yet know of their Maoriness or who have not had the chance to learn the language. It gives them a chance to understand a little bit of Maori thinking, for them to feel proud of being Maori, and that may inspire them to lean further. I watched a lot of behind-the-scenes videos with the team of this production. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of videos specifically in interviews where they talk about the authenticity of the show and how much they worked to honor the original film and this new adaptation. And one of my favorite things that someone described comes from Briar Rose, who is a Maori actress from the series. And she said in an interview, quote, We start on set every day with a Maori prayer, a karakia from Tanui Stevens. We wrap with a karakia. We bless every land we walk on. She adds that, quote, even though it might seem dramatic, this is a part of what adds to the show's authenticity. I'm really excited to give this show a watch. I think it sounds so good. It sounds so heartfelt. So I, I think it, oh my God, I don't have any words. I'm just like overwhelmed with how interested I am in watching this show because it just sounds like every single person who worked on it put their heart and soul into it, which to me always drives me to want to watch something. And if you are also interested in watching it, dear listener, as someone who comes from the film and TV world, this show has not yet been announced for season two renewal. Of course, quarantine and the pandemic is is causing a lot of issues in the filmmaking world. We don't know if maybe secretly it has already been renewed or canceled, but just in case they're still making a decision, if you're hearing this and feel enthusiastic, start watching it immediately because those numbers matter to Mm -hmm. shows like this. And even if this show were not to get renewed for season two, having an enthusiastic audience for a show about Maori culture allows other productions to explore similar ideas or just to focus as much on authenticity as they did because it takes time and money to care that much and it is time Mm -hmm. and money well spent but it is often hard to convince people that it is and by people I mean the people with the purses (laughs) yes (laughs) the one last thing I'll recommend is if you haven't seen it the movie hunt for the wilder people is a 2006 New Zealand adventure comedy drama film written and directed by Taika Waititi, whose screenplay was based on the book Wild Pork and Watercress by Barry Crump. Rowan, have you seen this movie? I have not, but I do love Taika Waititi's content. (laughs) Yeah, so Taika Waititi, famous for directing uh, Thor Ragnarok and the season one finale of The Mandalorian. This was kind of his big movie in New Zealand. It it was a big production for the time. You'll see a lot of actors you recognize from other Taika Waititi works. (laughs) It is so heartfelt. It is, you laugh, you cry. It's a beautiful story. And it's a beautiful story of bonding in a way you wouldn't expect. And between two people, between this young boy and this older man, who he and his wife adopt this boy from foster care. And it's the bonding between those two specifically that is just really beautiful in this story. So so if you're interested and you like Taika Waititi's work, check out Hunt for the Wilder People. It's very good.
Should we do it? I think we should do it. Tracy, tell me something good. Okay. Last night, I stayed up far, far too late because I finished Harrow the Ninth, the sequel no. to Gideon the Ninth. Oh, I'm still in the beginning <laughs> of that book. So what I will say for everyone, you know Rowan and I love Gideon the Ninth. I think we talked about I don't we talked about it a ton off the podcast. I don't think we talked about We've it. We talked on the about podcast. it a fair amount, I think. Um I loved Gideon more than she did because it's I have no problem feeling stupid when reading. I just go with the flow and am like, I don't understand anything. And Rowan wants to see every detail. And it's definitely a book that doesn't show you every detail. Which I think is kind of revealed in how we operate our portions of the podcast also. (laughs) And just to be clear, I do quite like the book. Yes. Yes. (laughs) I don't want to say that I'm not Gideon because I definitely am. Yes. I mean, as evidenced by you reading Harrow. So the the sequel to Gideon the Ninth is Harrow the Ninth. I'll say it starts out slow. In a way, I really, I did enjoy because I loved exploring the mind of that character. But about two-thirds of the way through, it pops off. It's so good. I could not, I read from like five o'clock until like one o'clock yesterday. I I couldn't stop. I could not stop. I reluctantly broke for dinner for maybe 10 minutes and then went back to reading. That's my dream goal for my evening because I have that book open. And I have to say, it Harrow at times gives me Ender's Game vibes. Just the just that little mm-hmm. hint, the the legacy of science fiction, how it has traveled through the decades. And just right now, ever occasionally I'm getting a little little Ender's Game. And I really enjoy I think- that. That was kind of a foundational sci-fi book for me when I was very, very young. Mm-hmm. So it builds a whole world. It builds a whole universe the way that Ender's Game does and the way that you can dive into that entire expansive experience. But the benefit is this one's way gayer. (laughs) (laughs) That is a good point. Something good was I'm very happy I got to enjoy those books. I cannot wait for the third and final book in the series. It's coming out someday. But Tamsin Muir is amazing. Her writing is fantastic and i will be enjoying those books multiple times <laughs> so rowan yes tell me something good my something good this week is that my mom gave me this little set of really nice paintbrushes mm-hmm. uh and <laughs> truth be told she gave them to me a minute ago and I did that weird thing where you don't want to open it right away. You know, the, like when you get a new notebook or like fresh pencils. Mm, and you, yep, you, yep. What a foolish thing to do. Um, I know. And I've been painting. And so I finally cracked them open. And um, they're these brushes that have little grips on them. Uh, like a, almost like a little pencil grip. Mm-hmm. Um, which makes them particularly nice to paint with. And I just have to say... They're not particularly expensive or fancy, and they just make me grin. They make my life easier and better, and I don't know why it took me so long to open the bag. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's that fear of they won't be, I don't know, using them will diminish them. The same way it's like, I have adult money. I can buy good skincare. Will I use it when I have it? No, I don't want to use it. 
because I don't want to waste it, except that there's no way to, you know, it's that thing. I'm really trying to combat that as a human being. Me too. And I've been doing that with all of my notebooks, actually. All of my notebooks that I have, uh, many, many notebooks, because people love to give them to me, they're all empty. And so I basically just went through all of them and just jacked up the first page. I just <laughs> scribbled on the first page. You can't be perfect anymore. There's you are officially messed up. And I it didn't I didn't realize that I had this these paintbrushes that I hadn't done that to basically. Yeah. Until I, I opened my box of art supplies and there they were, like a shiny holy grail in <laughs> in this box. So that that was like a little slice of bliss this week. I'm glad to hear it. Uh, I'm glad to hear you're back into painting and finding that release. You know, sometimes it's great and sometimes it is scribbling on the first pages of notebooks. So (laughs) that is where we are at. And it is mid-February for us in our time. Mm -hmm. And the world is as it has now been for quite a while. And I'm trying to now make decisions not with this idea that like it's all temporary and things are going to magically go back to normal maybe tomorrow yes because even though i wasn't thinking that way you know my brain wanted it to be that way (laughs) (laughs) yeah i i agree i've it's something that ron it's something that ron and i have talked about off podcast is the idea of what the world's going to be like when we're quote-unquote back to normal because I think a lot of the stuff that's been making life both good and hard won't necessarily go away when things go back to normal. And I think it's going to be really interesting to see how all of us cope with a world where normal is fundamentally different than it was before, but ourselves and our brains and the way we react to things are not. I think I am in a point of quarantine where the things that uh, upset me or frustrate me about quarantine are not quarantine itself. Maybe mm-hmm. not even a direct result of quarantine. And it's it's interesting to try to contend with the fact that all the things that are currently frustrating me are going to exist mm-hmm. still in just a very different wrapper one day. Yes. Same turd, different rapper. I truly, truly detest that. <laughs> Sorry, okay. Different old person candy. Same, Same shit, rapper. different day? Is that what we're trying to get to? That's fine. Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm moonwalking my way over to that. It's fine. Isn't there something about a me- metaphor like that that involves cake? Have your cake and eat it too? No, like you can't make a good cake when you start with bad ingredients kind of an idea yeah you know you gotta crack some eggs to make an omelet we're just gonna throw some more food (laughs) metaphors at it let's do it (laughs) thank you all so much for listening and remember stories grow with the telling so if you like what we do tell a friend or tell a foe and we will see you soon okay Thank you so much for joining us for the Willing and Fable podcast. This episode was written and produced by Tracy Harrison and Rowan Hall. That's me. Our music was written and performed by Taylor Ash, and our logo is by Jamie Harrison. 
If you ever want to watch or read what we're reading, head over to willingandfable.com for our show notes, or find us at Willing and Fable on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to join the discussion. We hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast using your favorite listening source. And check out Willing and Fable on Patreon, where we have more than a few surprises for you, including custom artwork, stories, and access to our secret Discord channel. And of course, join us next time for another round of ancient myths, local legends, and stories with staying power.